This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Do you dream of writing a novel, or do you just like listening to authors talk? I'm Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading, Stories Behind the Story podcast. This new podcast springs from many requests we've had from listeners to do more episodes on how to write. We've produced a six-part series where we discuss the craft of writing with some of Australia's top authors and industry professionals. Welcome to Better Reading on Writing. I guess for me it's voice. Yeah. I actually have to hear the voice. Um, And I hear the voice. Yeah, once I, I, you know, so with Barracuda it was like I could start writing once I, I knew Danny's voice. That was The Slap and Barracuda author Christos Charkos talking to me about once he has a character's voice, then he can begin a book. It's the starting point for him. So how important is good dialogue to a story? Do some authors have a natural ear for it? Can it be developed? Well, today we're talking to uh, writer extraordinaire Melina Marchetta, um, author of Looking for Alabrandi and most recently The Place on Dalhousie. Um, you really are an expert when it comes to dialogue, Melina. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so Melina's going to talk to us about the voices she hears in her head and driving a story forward using dialogue. Does she talk out loud as she writes? And who has been her loudest character? Wow, I haven't thought about who's been my loudest character. Um, I'll start from where it start. It always starts with a character and... I'm a bit cruel because I won't put pen to paper unless they prove themselves in my head. So I listen to them for quite a while. And I think of one particular novel, The Piper's Son, because he was such a male character coming to me and I, and I was so surprised that the deal was, no, I'm just going to listen to what you've got to say. So I was listening to a lot of dialogue in my head between these characters. Sometimes I would write that dialogue down And all of that dialogue did not go in the novel, but I had to hear it to understand what sort of a character um, he was and where the others were in their lives. So um, it really, I I feel as if I write a novel in my head first and then I write a novel on on paper and I can't write it on paper until I've got that voice right and I feel as if they're worthy of, of owning a book. So you have all those people running around in your head and pretty much that storyline before you sit down to start writing. Well, I always say that I know how it begins and I know how it ends and I sort of know how I get there and that seems so simple. You actually think it's going to be as simple as writing that down and then you don't know how to – you don't know what that first line is. You you just don't know how to get it going and that's probably the difficult part because you think, but I know it all. I know exactly what's going to, um, how it's going to end. But it's really filling up those pages. I'm not one of those people who write down 
um, a list of things that are going to happen. It mostly stays in my head. Um, and I always say this, that I think it's why writers or people who want to write talk about it a lot um, rather than sitting down and writing it because you think you're never going to get it as right as it is in your head. I want to go back because you're one of those unusual writers. When you wrote, like a lot of the writers that we talk to at Better Reading have been to creative courses or write creative writing courses, writing courses, they belong to writing groups. But when you wrote Looking for Alabrandi, it was so unique in that you just came to it as a person, not as a writer. Yes, and I actually saw myself as just the writer of that novel, not only when it came out, but even after it came out. I just thought I wanted to write that novel. I wanted to see that novel published. I never found myself saying to people, I want to be a writer or I'm a writer. And it's taken quite a long time for me to be able to own that um, title. And it's not because I didn't think I was worthy, but I didn't grow up saying I want to be a writer one day, but I did grow up with movies and stories in my head. Um, So I just felt that it was that storytelling Um, It's almost like I didn't know that there was another side to it, like making a living out of it. But it it just, um, I'm not at all dismissive of courses. I think in a way I would love to have um, really been part of that. I think the network, I think your, you know, your lecturers, most of them, you know, when I speak to someone, they are writers as well. But for me, I just didn't have that world available to me. And so I just got on with telling stories. I think it's so gutsy. You had an idea. You were, how old were you when you put pen to paper for looking for Alibrandi? Probably 19 when I started it. Yeah. And then you thought, well, that's it. I'm going to do it. Like, I mean, did you even think you were going to write a book? I mean, it just, or you're putting down, you just decided I'm going to tell this story. I did think that. And it was just more of... It, it, you know, it's very different to today because I find that a lot of people, when I'm speaking in an audi- to an audience, once upon a time I was speaking to an audience of readers, whereas now I'm speaking to an audience, half of them are writers mm-hmm. and not published writers, but people who want to be writers. Whereas when I was 19, there weren't, people who were writers did go to university. They, they belonged to families of writers. So for me, it was... I want to tell this story and I was almost telling it to myself. Even if I was going to be the only reader, um, I just got on and wrote it and I didn't think of audience at all. What I loved about that book, and I know we've spoken about this before, but I think this is really important to mention now, it had the most unique voice for me. It was the first time I had read about myself in a fiction novel. I could identify with the characters. It was people that I knew. It was people that I grew up with. And I feel that you still have that, that you – like. The place on Dalhousie still has that. So even though you've grown and you've changed and you've learnt along the way, you still have that unique voice. Like the place on Dalhousie is just a group of unlike, you know, just likely people doing not very much, but it is the most compelling story because it's about people and it's about conversation. I know, but I think I always say this in a strange way. I wonder if it's because back then I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm not saying that I don't know what I'm doing now, but I think if you get into that mode of I want to construct this dialogue, that's when it does lose the freshness and and all of that. So 
I just think it's people that make dialogue interesting and it's the conversations obviously you have. I constantly say this and I stick by it. I have the most profound conversations in the aisles at Coles because I am bumping into people I haven't seen for a while and you are telling what's happened in the last year in five minutes and so you're condensing everything down in a way. And you do hear profound stories. I hear profound stories when I am watching um, my daughter train at netball. Someone will tell the story of their marriage breaking up and there'll be someone else there who is crying because they're hearing this story. So there you are cheering on kids and clapping and tr- you know staying cheerful for them, but you're involved in someone's pain and, and drama in a way. And I'm not saying that I go home and and steal that, but it's taught me that that's where um, our that's where our passions come from. That's where our drama comes from, and I, I and I try to bottle that. Um, but I half the time I don't know what I'm doing, and I've learned to be comfortable with that rather than um, you know try to fix yourself up first draft. And I think when it comes back to voice, I was always told this even as a teacher. Um, the kids would say to me. Or an adult would say, you don't speak any differently when you're speaking to the kids. Um, You know, when you speak to an adult, you speak the same way as you do, you know, to the kids. And I don't put on a different voice for kids and adults. But I think you speak like you write as well. And I suppose that that all comes into it. I just, maybe I just don't know any other way. Mm. And I have got a great ear for dialogue. So, you know, that's, that's one thing that I'm very grateful for. Melina, I found this quote um, from an author called Jerome Stern that I'd like to share with you about dialogue. Dialogue is not just a quotation. It is grimaces, pauses, adjustments of blouse buttons, doodles on a napkin and crossing of legs. I mean, I just love that quote. It is the nuance, isn't it, of dialogue. But I also think that every one of those things um, have got to do with character. They've got to do with personality And for me, I've always said that dialogue should, for me, should serve three purposes. One is pushing the plot forward, of course, finding something out. But the other thing is it tells us something about the person who is speaking, about their personality, about a lot of things, you know, about them, but also about the relationship between them and the person they're speaking to. And you have to show that, obviously, and not tell it. So all of those things, I I think, have so much to do with the character and who the person is. You could almost kind of write a profile of who that person um, he's describing is. Mm. That's really quite interesting. So show it and not tell it. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I I always give an example if I'm teaching dialogue. In Finnegan of the Rock, there's a scene where two young men, virile, they're 19, running through the woods at night. Um, They're trying to save someone. And one of them just disappears, obviously, in a hole. Um, And Finnegan says, Lucian, are you down there? And Lucian's response is, where else would I be? And for me, that shows, A, he's down there, so it tells us something about the plot. It tells us a lot about Lucian's personality and it tells us a lot about the relationship between him and Finnegan. So I think in two lines, you can replace half a page of someone telling you something. And that's, it's hard. You don't do that every single time. Of course, you write dialogue because you'd be writing the same novel for the next hundred years. But for me, I I remember that rule. What is going to be the response and it's fun when, once again, you're teaching writing 
because I do this at home when I'm writing dialogue, that you give them one statement and you ask them to respond to that statement as a character and you'll find, of course, that there are 10 different um, responses in, in that room and those 10 responses tell you something very different about a character in a relationship. So um, it's good for them to be able to see how I break it down because that's what I'm doing a lot of times you know, when I'm, when I'm editing. Mm. Tell me what it was like for you to take looking for Ella Brandy from a novel to a screenplay. I mean, how, how did that process work? Well, the, one of the interesting things um, before, well, probably around the time that it was starting is I had about maybe two months at the film school because they were giving out um, fellowships for prose writers, for novelists, um, because the big claim is novelists do not know how to write scripts. I do not believe that's true. Um, but well, it wasn't true um, for you. But yeah. I also think they're two different skills. I think what they've got right is they are two completely different ways of writing. I think there's a science to and a structure to writing screenplays. It's why I have trouble with screenplays more than um, writing a novel. But one of the things, I'll never forget this exercise um, because once again, it's less is more. And a script is all about less writing and more visuals. Um, so I wrote a, an action piece, would have just been, she walks into the restaurant, sits down, like, and it would have been half a page. And I read it out and I was told, cut that in half. Um, so take out half the words. And so I did that. And I remember reading it to myself thinking, wow, that worked. It was so succinct. And I read it out. And he said, that's great. Now cut it down in half again. And sometimes you're left with one line and you realise that one line can say it all. And once again, that's a skill that you, that you learn and you can't be indulgent about what you want to say. And the one thing I also talk about when I'm writing that sort of dialogue is no one's going to let you, unless you're interviewing, um, being interviewed, no one's going to let you speak for one minute without being interrupted. So you have to really keep those responses pretty, um, I suppose, tight, but also they have to be saying a lot. Mm. You said something to me when we spoke recently um, on another podcast. You said to me with Looking for Alibrandi, it was like you had to get the novel, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you had to really just, it was like throwing it on the floor and scattering it and then just picking the eyes out of it. Was that right? I use the word smashing it on the floor. <laughs> there you go. Totally smashing it because the novel is not the film. And the one thing that goes out the window with an adaptation, it has to, is the narrative voice. And with a, a novel like Ella Brundy, people loved that narrative voice. They loved her speaking um, to the reader. And you think, how am I going to replace that? And so what I had to do is smash it and then pick up the pieces and restructure it because the structure of a um, film is different to the structure of a novel. I feel that with you, with your writing, that I hear the accents. I hear the, you know, like talking like the adjustments of layers of buttons, but I hear that in sound. And, you know, of course, there's no accents in, in a sense in writing dialogue. It's... It's the sentence, isn't it? Well, it's the rhythm of the sentence. Ah, and talk a to lot me of, about that. Well, I think I heard this quite often and people would comment quite often that I, I taught for 10 years. I haven't taught since 2006. So I must have been able to write teenagers because I was 
kind of copying what they were saying. And I wasn't because, you know, no offence to teenagers, they weren't saying anything profound. But what I noticed, and especially teaching boys, is they had a rhythm and that could be because um, they did have, you know, some of them, I felt it was this sing-song way of... um I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Speaking, and I think I comment about that in um, in Francesca, but what I've noticed about young men is they remove personal pronouns. Um, so it's give not, me an example. Well, it's not. I don't know. It's don't know. Um, yes. So when I was writing a grief-stricken character, young man like Tom Mackey in The Piper's Son, I felt that I removed parts of the sentence. It's almost like he just was too angry and grief-stricken to even complete a sentence in a way. So it was getting that right compared to, I think, when I was writing Georgie, his aunt, who's in her early 40s, I felt that she spoke a lot longer. It was that kind of monologue of what you say inside your head, you're just, you know, saying it um, in a state of grief. So I stereotype, but I think that women speak more when they're grief-stricken and men speak less. And so that's what I try to do with my characters. I have to accept that going beyond stereotypes, there is very much a difference between the way men and women speak, and especially when it comes to emotion. That's a life lesson right there, Melina. Thank you. When you're writing outside your own experience, you really have to do your homework. Um, and if you're writing from a foreign, in a foreign country or a foreign culture, that's really, and, you, and I think you should be able to do it. All writers are able to do that through their imagination, create characters that aren't them. That's because you have to, don't you? I mean, otherwise you can't tell a story. It can't well, be that three people contribute to writing a book or exactly. depending on the number of characters. Exactly. How would the Bront you know, yeah. how would the Brontes write all those fantastic male characters, for God's sakes? I yeah. mean it's um Middlemarch. How it's just you but you really have to do your homework. And the problem is when that homework's not done and it's just virtue signalling or theft. You know, cultural theft. Uh, that was J.R. Lonnie, the author of The Woman from St. Germain, and he talked to me about how he feels it's okay to write outside your own location. 
It's okay to write outside your own cultural experience, perhaps even race. But you have to do the work to walk in those characters' shoes. And I think you do that remarkably well because, you know, we're talking about all this cultural appropriation now, but you have several characters in your book. You've got kids, you know, who've um, an Aussie background, kids from an Italian background, kids from a Lebanese background. You have to have all of those characters in a book to make a story, particularly your stories. How do you do it? Well, I do remember some of the um, – and they weren't sentences, they were the statements. My my um, favourite statement when I was – well, listening to the boys when I was teaching, for example, because I did teach in a very multicultural classroom. I, I went – I taught at a school that was in the city, so we had a train line and it meant that we had kids from all over the Sydney but also um, quite – you know, there wasn't one dominant culture – and I love the Lebanese boys because um, if you said, yeah, that's correct, they'd say, yeah, because Lebs rule. And I knew <laughs> I had to use that. I had to use that line. So it was kind of these throwaway lines. I mean, that's a literal one because they are mentioning um, a particular um, culture. But I do remember that they had this this way of speaking or this way of expressing themselves that wasn't literal. And some of the boys, and I was saying this before, um, if they had in some way upset you, they would never come back and apologise. You'd never get an apology, but you would get another question like, you know, what's for homework this afternoon? And I thought, oh, wow, that's their way of saying I'm sorry. So I felt as if I had to find a completely different way of understanding what they had to say. But the the one thing you can't do, and this is when you're speaking, when you're writing about a particular age or a particular culture is you can't put in all the stereotypes because that's when it will come across stilted. And I sometimes think that the best thing to do is instead of mispronouncing what the, the words is to leave out words um, because one of the things that I've discovered with Italians, for example, older Italians, is they leave out all um, the joining words and it comes across abrupt to people who aren't used to it. But to me, it's not abrupt, it's just they are using the important words rather than, you know, the... um So talk to me about how you bring in different, it's not accents, but different language into dialogue. So particularly with your stories, how do I identify that that person is, you know, a Lebanese Australian or a Greek Australian or... But you do it just through dialogue. I can hear it when I read it. I feel as if I try not to do an accent. Um, I had a lot of trouble in first drafts, and when I say first drafts, first drafts with my publishers for Alabrundi because we had the character of Katia and Katia speaks very, very broken English. She's so the grandmother. She's the grandmother. Yeah. And so I tried very hard not to um, to get her accent in the same way as my grandmother's accents because I knew that that would not make sense to the reader and it wouldn't come through. So what I had to think of is what do they do when they want to get a message across? And that was they use the words needed to get the message across and they will leave out joining words. So if they have to go down to the supermarket, they don't say, I'm going down to the supermarket. They say, I go to supermarket. And I think, well, we know it. We know the communication is there. They've just kind of ripped 
into the language and got rid of all the insignificant words. So that's what I had to start doing for these characters, making sure that we understand what they're saying, but you don't have a reader who does not have an ear for accents because if you have a reader who doesn't have an ear for accents, many people, then that sentence will make absolutely no sense but to them. I'm still hearing that English isn't her first language. Um, but yes. couldn't that just be because of the fact that um, it's it's also the the words you choose. You yes. don't you don't kind of just say I'm going to take out the ins and the its and the thes. It's the words you choose. And once again, going back to writing young men, you get a rhythm. Um, I, I like that idea of rhythm. And the interesting thing with rhythm is when I'm speaking, when I have a non-English speaking character, I take out words in the same way as the young men, but I don't take out the same sort of words. So you've still got this rhythm. Whereas when I've had to write, I had to write a crazy character once. Her name was Quintana. She's in the um, fantasy novels. So what I did with hers is I wanted a lot of words because crazy people speak a lot, but I put a rhythm to it and I almost used, um, you know, the same sort of rhythm as in a soliloquy. So I made sure that there were like 10 um, syllables per sentence. And that was the hardest thing I ever wrote. It was a prologue, but it worked because it was still a ramble, but it had a music to it. Even if you don't have an ear for music, you could recognise that there were, a, there were a particular amount of beats in, in the sentence. So I think it's about beats. Mm. Um, it's about not trying too hard because if you do, you get really um, over-the-top stereotypes. And I, I can't stand you know, listening or watching actually, watching something where you know the char- the actor is not from a non-English speaking background, that they are, they can speak perfect English, but they're putting on this fake accent. I think they've gone, um, they've gone the wrong way. They should have just removed um, the less important words and got their message across. Mm. It's really, uh, I want to go back to um, Christos Chalkos's quote that we heard earlier on in this podcast. Tim Winton starts with landscape so he is he told me that he's not ready to write until he completely can feel where his book is set and where it's going to be and Christos Chalkos said it was about character is yours a single character where does yours come from because they are they are snapshots of kind of uh, community life or family life so how does that come together for you it's an interesting question because forget Alla Brandi because I didn't know what I was doing there and also Josie came on her own. She was a force on her own. To a certain degree so did Francesca but her mother came with her. But with every other novel, Taylor Markham's the same in On the Jellico Road, she came on her own but I knew that world was coming with her. But with Finnegan of the Rock, he gets the title of the novel but there was never a Finnegan without Evangeline. They were two important characters. They both owned the book, but I could not have it from her point of view because she had all the secrets and she'd tell the reader and I, I couldn't have that. So she stays mysterious to him. And when I think of the Piper son, Tom Mackey came at the exact – no, he came a minute before his Aunt Georgie came. They are both the narrators. So I feel much as – it's the same as my novels are about communities. They do usually come together as characters. And I found that with On the Place of Dalhousie, 
on, on Dalhousie. That novel does not just belong to Jimmy or Martha or Rosie. The three of them, they came to me together and I never took sides. I never loved writing one chapter or one voice over the other. I, I love I loved them I all. never took sides. I didn't. I mean, well, you, <laughs> you love the three characters. I equally. did. And also you, there's a chance of taking sides because two of those characters, those women are fighting over that house. And you'd be able to see if I was taking sides. And sometimes you think, oh, I think she's on Martha's side. But then you read Rosie's chapter and it's like, no, she's actually not. She's on both their sides. And I I couldn't have a favourite when I was right. When you write three characters, I don't think you can have a favourite unless you're trying to make a point at the end. And I try very hard not to have a favourite, although those characters come together. Mm. You, you you really are um, just – it's magic how you then put community in a street, you know, the place on Dalhousie, and the sense of place is through the dialogue. Well, I think it's getting back to um, – I think it's interesting what Tim Winton said because for me that setting – I'm not saying it's not important – but I honestly believe I could take all these characters and it could be the place in some place in Queensland and then I'd have to do more research. But it's those characters and where I place them rather than the setting and the characters that I gather into that setting. Um, I, and I say this because I think when I started wanting to write this novel, I thought it was going to be set around Roselle and Balmain because it was where I lived. Now, anyone who knows this area knows that they're probably two suburbs away from Haberfield, but for me, two different worlds. Oh, absolutely. So they would have been different characters. They would have had different people around them. And the dialogue would have been different. And it would have. And that's what people don't understand, that it's, it is where you end up placing the characters that opens up what they're talking about, how they're talking. But I have to start with those characters and it comes down to, you know, I've been asked so many times and I got asked the other day by Christos um, where home is, where I feel as if I belong. And I wouldn't have been able to answer this 20 years ago, but for me it's wherever my family is. So if my family and my friends, I have to say, my family and my friends, they all decided to, you know, go and migrate to Hong Kong, I'd be there. And that's such a foreign place to me. But to me it's about the people in my world rather than, the physical, you know, what I love about the inner West. What I love about the inner West and my part of the inner West are the people and that's who I'm interested in following. Yeah, same. Melina, what do you think are the three things you have done that have helped you carve out a successful career? Number one? I've written 10 novels now and I would say that I have been in love with the world of every one of those novels. It hasn't changed for me. So for me, it's so important that I am, in a, I am in a state of being in love with them because that means that I get to flesh out every one of those characters and give them a place in the story I want to tell. The second one is I try never to um, solve the problems of the characters or the plot problems or the structural problems in front of a computer or in front of if someone's, you know, handwriting their story. For me, I want that time to be that I'm writing because I feel as if if I'm trying to solve problems there, I'll give up and I won't be doing anything. So f for me, I tend to – sometimes I write the novel, you know, a year, during the year before I put it 
um, pen to paper and it's fleshing out the characters and their problems. Other times when I've started writing it, you know, I will walk the dog, I will be driving. Most of the time, you know, in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I'm solving someone's problem, you know, in my novel. Um, And, you know, I had read once that that period of time that you spend with your character and your novel in your head is still part of the process of writing it. It's not, you know, this is when I started writing it when I put pen to paper, that that dream world that you had of your characters is when you first start started writing it. So for me, I solve those problems, or I try to, of course, before I sit down and start writing, you know, on a daily basis as well. And the third is I write every day, and sometimes I just write rubbish. And other times I just need, when I said before that I need to get from point one to, you know, from the beginning to the end, I'm writing every day and then the next day I'll go back to what I've written and I will get rid of 80% of it, but there's 20% that for me is pure gold or it could be the sentence that starts off my writing day. So even though I don't want to write, I just sit down and think, you know, where do you get to the next, how do you get to the next point? Melina Marquetta, I mean, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Better Reading on Writing, please leave an iTunes review. Also, visit our site, betterreading.com, for podcast notes and join the Better Reading community on Facebook for more books, author chats and great community discussions. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.